This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Robin's new scenario structure chapbook. Exeter Cathedral Tombs. The end of the science fiction cinema essentials. And Lecvoense's Handshake. you doing? I'm getting into character to play the new Plain Gia 5e campaign setting. It's about dinosaurs! Well, technically it's a prehistoric fantasy campaign setting, so not just about dinosaurs, but dinosaurs! I don't think you actually play as a dinosaur, but there are a ton of new kinships, subclasses, monsters, factions. I guess it is possible. I'll just check through this massive 380-page Plain Gia setting book and see. Well, okay... Oh, wow, you totally can play as a dinosaur. Playing Gia is a prehistoric fantasy setting for 5e. It's a place of utter wildness where survival is the only law and must be carved from the world by a force of might and magic. Play a saurian with ancestral memories. Pick from a leather wing, hammer tail, sharp fang, or web foot. Indeed, rawr. Discover a world of raw action, primordial horror, and mystic awe in Playing Gia for 5e. Nothing is as you expect in Playing Gia. Elves are shimmering dreamwalkers. Dwarves are half stone. Humans are beast tamers. Halflings are silent stalkers. Gnomes are filthy scavengers. And dragonborn are just a heartbeat away from their draconic ancestors. The campaign setting book, as well as accessories like the GM screen, adventure soundtrack, and deluxe boxed edition are all available now from Atlas Games. For more, use your tiny flailing arms to type in atlas-games.com slash Plain Gia. Well, when we swan into the room, we see that Peter Frampton is spotting an audacious trilby because that is just one of our many hats, which we are among today on this segment. And when we are among our many hats and I'm throwing the segment, we assume it is one of Robin's hats, possibly a Borsellino, who can say, or maybe a fur hat like they have in Canada. Robin, why don't you tell us about said chapeau? Right, because of course the point of this segment is that this is when the covert self-promotion of the entire rest of the podcast becomes overt self-promotion, and this time around I am overtly promoting the Adventure Crucible Kraken Chat Book, which is a fundraiser publication that I was commissioned to write for the Kraken Gaming Retreat in Germany, which I was supposed to attend the debut of, but unfortunately the Eris variant of COVID had different ideas. It smote us down. Yeah, but I still want to talk about it because you don't have to go to the fabulous, low-key, lovely, uh, relaxing, intensive Kraken gaming retreat to get this, but you can also get it on PDF at uh, Drive-Thru RPG, and eventually you'll be able to get whatever printed copies remain. For example, if you're one of those collectors who puts things in mylar bags. This will be a a rarity to snap up. You'll be able to get that from all rolled up. So Fabian Kuschler of the Kraken has commissioned me in the past to write different Kraken chapbooks. It's a fundraiser for the show. So the extra funds that the piece uh, generates go toward keeping this going and inviting guests. And it's an extremely worthy cause. And one of the things I wrote in the past was something called uh, Sharper Adventures for Hero Quest. Glorantha, and he asked me to update that and just make it generic. And then when I looked at the HeroQuest Glorantha thing, it's like, oh, wait a minute, this is tackling the very, very specific issues of scenario design for Glorantha, uh, one of those sort of second wave games with a very detailed setting and a very sort of sandboxy vibe. And it's always faced the challenge of not having a really clear core activity or of sort of having adventures where the characters sort of passively look at the world, do things, Mm -hmm. but that's not the main problem of generic scenario design. So I took a step back and went, wait a minute, this, uh, if I'm going to write about scenario design in general, I need to do something totally different. And so that's 
what I did. And so what this book does is it looks at all of the major types of role-playing game scenarios and so identifies those structures. And it also has a series of, of steps to look at to think about as you initially start to design an adventure. So it wound up being something quite different than the original conception and something I think of much wider interest and use than the original one, which was very keyed in on uh, Glorantha people. So the result is basically, uh, having read it, an uh, anatomy in our Northrop Fryian sense of adventure design. It's trying to break out adventures into sort of uh, useful general categories. We are not trying to be Linnaeans here and say that everything is only and always one of these things, but these are sort of the general structures of adventures if you design them. And it's helpful when you design something to know, is it going to be a bridge? Is it going to be a house? Is it going to be a machine gun? Who can say? Or in our case, is it going to be a dungeon, right? Right. Because one of the challenges, it's it's not, it wound up being a taxonomy. And I guess, mm-hmm. yes, you're right. I guess without even thinking about it, my Northrop Fryian impulses came through again. But the point is to make it something practical for you to use to find ways to make your various scenarios in these different styles uh, richer and more interesting and make the players like them more, not just to create a, a taxonomy for critical assessment. For one thing, we don't have a body of critical work on scenarios. Yes, and aren't likely to in the foreseeable future. Yes, but whenever I say that anything that weird and abstruse isn't going to happen, then it does. Yeah, right. Well, (laughs) who knows? Anyway. Anyway, uh, but one of the temptations as I was going through with this sort of mode of analysis was to make sure that I didn't start prescribing techniques that no one actually uses in Mm -hmm. order to, to fit the pattern. But at any rate... What I'm putting forward in this chapbook as the five major types of scenario are as follows. So first of all, there's the dungeon, the granddaddy of them all, and one that I think a lot of people who think they've moved beyond the dungeon have sort of lost touch with why that is such a brilliant and effective platform for player-driven adventure. And it doesn't have to literally be a... Dave Arneson, Gary Gygax style underground environment with doors that you open and creatures on the other side of the door. But anything that is basically an area clearance scenario where there are a bunch of adversaries controlling a space and you have to, as player characters, gain control of that space by overcoming them is a dungeon. So that can be, you know, an an installation full of goons. It can be a uh, a wilderness environment, uh, what have you, anything where the structure is... A big haunted house, a derelict starship, who can say? Right. And a haunted house is not necessarily a dungeon, but it can be if there's something in every room that you Right, have if to- there's a multivariant bunch of spooks and it's not just, he said, uh, leading into the second type, solving a single mystery of what's haunting this house. Right. So the mystery is the one that I think will be uh, very familiar to listeners of this podcast mm-hmm. because it's the, the bread and butter of gumshoe. And it's also, uh, as we found while developing gumshoe, the bread and butter of a lot of procedural narrative. Mm-hmm. So that's one in which the characters, they move from scene to scene over the course of investigation, and they're uh, drawn by their information gathering uh, through these separate scenes. The scenes can be arranged in a maze, they can be floating in an ocean to use our two different structures for that. So there's no one structure for any one of these, Mm -hmm. but you encounter dangers and obstacles along the way. But ultimately the thing that is pulling you through in this instance is answering a question, right? That question can be, you know, who murdered Bob? It can be what's going on in this house. It can be, how do we get the sword to stab the dragon? But there's a question that pulls you through the narrative and gives you your through line. That brings us to the next one, the chain of fights. This is the structure uh, that is used in Feng Shui and a whole lot of other games. A lot of superhero games will work this way. And basically, you confront a group of enemies, and then there's some plot elements that draw you to another group of enemies that is pulled through from the first one, and then more plot elements, and then you keep going until there's a big boss fight at the end. In Feng Shui, it suggests that you three fights plus connective tissue is uh, something that'll give you the feeling of a an, an action movie, but the number of fights in the chain is not necessarily foreordained. There's no 
you know, clear answer to what that has to be. But it's the uh, moving from fight to fight is the basic structural element of right. this third type of adventure. As I've as I've said before, that the fights are like the songs in a musical that they're ideally setting up emotional stakes, driving action, and ideally setting up the next fight in some fashion. Right. And often there will be sort of muted mystery elements right. as you find out where the next fight is. Mm-hmm. And Knights Black Agents, I think, or in a lot of ways. Or you could imagine a, a chain of fights that is also structurally very similar to a dungeon. If you're clearing out Bloodhaven, Batman and the Outsiders are out there getting it done, and they have to fight a bunch of bad guys, but the bad guys are all you know, under the command of the Joker or something. And so that's your sort of uh, overlap of chain of fights dungeon with a little bit of mystery because Batman is the world's greatest detective. Right. The fourth structure that I've set forward in the chat book is survival. And this in a way is sort of a, a reverse chain of fights in which you're adopting a defensive posture and uh, you encounter dangers and obstacles, possibly fights, probably fights, but not mm-hmm. necessarily as you try to defend a place, person, or resource. So an adventure where your plane crashes on the plateau of Lang and you try to stay alive until you're rescued, that's a survival scenario. Or, or just standard zombie survival horror adventure. Yeah. Or, you know, defending your precinct from the criminals advancing on it. It's the, So that's a more difficult one to pull off, which is why it's sort of near the end, because typically you don't want your players just sort of turtling down and they typically i think want more agency than just defending a place and they kind of stop the story but you can run very effective kind of one-shot survival scenarios either as a change of pace within an existing campaign or uh, as a one-shot and that can or be- as the opener that leads you into the campaign even exactly uh, so it can be very powerful but isn't necessarily something that you can keep repeating again and yes. again the way that the, the first three are. Right. And then finally, we have one that's quite different, and that's intrigue. And that's uh, one in which the characters are vying for influence and power in a dynamic political environment. Uh, and so in that one, there's a lot of negotiation with rivals. You may have dangers and obstacles uh, thrown at you. You may notice that I'm saying dangers and obstacles for each of these because those are the building blocks of any scenario, regardless of its structure. So anything that sort of feels like essentially a North American LARP while you're sitting down occasionally rolling dice is an intrigue uh, scenario. And of course, Ken, as the uh, lead designer of the newest version of Vampire, you know this structure well. Yeah. And it's also one that occasionally you find yourself in if you've got a game in which characters have high agency, but you can't just immediately shoot the bad guys. So I would say if you're playing Nobilis or even Unknown Armies, you wind up with a lot of scenarios that are basically intrigue scenarios. And we can maybe put a pin in that and come back to it another time. But the notion that the structure can also depend on the type of conflict as well as the type of character is I think maybe an interestingly underexplored one, right? That a chain of fights implies a very robust bunch of both characters and bad guys, a la the supers genre. Obviously the, the dungeon implies a lot of disposable bad guys because you have to clear it. And so these sorts of, of questions become, uh, I guess the building blocks of the building block. If, if I'm, going in the right direction. And I think what you're beginning to tease here, Ken, is that this is going to be the beginning of a series. Did I tease that? Oh, no. You did tease that. So, uh, one thing that I've learned uh, while at Gen Con is that people love series. So, Mm -hmm. we're going to wrap up one series in this episode and start this other one. So, we're going to come back and do uh, five gaming huts on the uh, five main sorts of uh, scenario structures. I should also mention, although I don't think we'll give them their own segments, two less common, but nonetheless familiar structures. And the first one is the picaresque, which is just one in which the characters sort of amble around poking things. It's often sort of a a low stakes, uh, sometimes humorous thing. And the whole point is that it's sort of structureless, is that it's extremely sandboxy and is about going around and exploring the world and getting into trouble and then running away from that trouble. And, and then finally, of course, there's drama. <laughs> we can't leave that out. And that's about... Well, I'm not sure we can't, Robin. The role-playing game business has left it out for years and years and years. Well, it turns out that's a 
perhaps even lucrative niche to mm -hmm. specialize in. Uh, but at Only any rate, someone was making a game to that effect. Yes. So just so that basically I'm mentioning this so that people don't say, hey, Robin, you left out the thing that the thing one that of the things your game, game specializes about. in. And that's a story primarily about emotional exchange rather than about wheeling and dealing the way that intrigue is. And so very briefly, the book sort of takes the same lens and series of steps to look at each of these structures and it guides you kind of in how you put any one of these together. So in any case, whatever the scenario, you have a dilemma uh, in which you express what the essential problem is that the characters are called on to solve, which can be there's an area in need of cleaning. There's a mystery. There's power that you need to seize. There's a sad-eyed vampire lady. Yeah, but, you know, you're very specifically laying out what the uh, basic goal of the scenario is. Mm -hmm. Next, I advise that people look at the choices that you are offering because for a scenario to be, I think, really come alive and be truly interactive, on some level, what the players choose to do within that context is meaningful. It will have a mm -hmm. difference on their reception of it. And for example, one of the reasons, and we'll get into this more next week, that the dungeon is as robust as it is, is that it actually offers a lot of choice, mm -hmm. or perhaps even more importantly, the feeling of a lot of choice uh, in a way that some of these other structures, you have to work harder to make it feel like they have choices. You also want to explore when you're designing a scenario, the consequences, which is what happens along the way if they succeed or fail. And having them succeed is easy and planning for their failures to not derail the plot is something we've recently talked about in terms of stealth obstacles, but it's something that I think is really intrinsic to the real work of putting a scenario together. And then finally, the other question that I urge people to look at is the rooting interest. You know, what, why, as in any narrative, including a passive narrative, why do the players care about this? How are you going to uh, hook them in? And it seems like an obvious point, but because it's obvious, you have to make sure that it's obviously there in your scenario. Well, Robin, that sounded like a wonderful foundation for a five-part series. Right. So if you want to read along at home, again, yep. uh, the PDF is on drive through RPG and the uh, actual physical chapbook either is or will soon be available at All Rolled Up. And it will, of course, not just help you enjoy the upcoming series, but give you lots of uh, good, actionable think for when you are designing your own scenarios, which is kind of the whole point. And it's not just the point of the little uh, chat book. It's kind of the point of the whole podcast, which continues after this ad. After a serpentine journey, the long-awaited scenario supplement for Cthulhu Confidential has shed its final skin to achieve full print form. Yes, Even Death Can Die is now a book filled with terror for one player and one GM. Featuring three scenarios apiece, starring the core book's iconic investigators. Chris Bivey's scholarly World War II vet Langston Wright takes on corrupt businessmen and Nazi spies in One for the Money. Struggles to expel an extraterrestrial passenger from his body in The Shadow Over Washington. And tangles with a traveling fire and brimstone evangelist in Preacher Man Blues. Ruth Tillman's straight-talking New York investigative journalist Vivian Sinclair tackles murder from a distance in The Howling fog goes deep underground as a strike roils a water tunnel project and deeper things stir further below in ex astoria and finds the creepy and crawly behind a gambling ship benefit gala in boundary waters and my la hardboiled detective dex raymond looks into a wave of rat attacks and a child's disappearance leading to the house up in the hills takes on a case for a legendary movie prop designer when Frankenstein's lab gear goes missing in high voltage kill and finds something terrible under a bed at the Revelstock Hotel in Skin and Teeth. Can you solve these cases with your hide and mind intact? Find out in Even Death Can Die, now available from your superior local game store or at the Pelgrane Press web store. time to pick up our pickaxes to put some pith in our pith helmets and descend once more into the excavation 
that will lead us to the archaeology hut. And this time around, beloved Patreon backer Matthew Preston points to the discovery of empty tombs in Exeter Cathedral. And his obvious question, there's these two tombs that have been discovered. One might expect, on first glance, there to be bishops in them. And the, the tombs are a surprise. Mm-hmm. The documentary material suggested there were no tombs, but there were. There are two, there are tombs, but the bishops that were said to be in them, and we know who they were, were not in them. And this uh, causes... Well, we think we know who they were. Yes. Because there's not labels on the tombs. Right. They're just guessing. And again, every piece of information about this follows this same Smithsonian magazine piece, which obviously follows the press release of the archaeologists. But... Having done literally one piece of research for this segment, I can say that this is wrong. <laughs> that a faultlessly tiresome history of Exeter Cathedral written in 18-something or other, <laughs> it knew that there was tombs there. It knew that there was a crypt where they said that they didn't know there was a crypt. And also it casts a little shade on one of the potential identifications. So just... Throwing that out there that you can't believe everything you read, even in the vaunted pages, the vaulted pages of Smithsonian Magazine. Right. So this archaeological excavation is actually part of a restoration process mm-hmm. in which the Exeter Cathedral, of course, is still in in-operation place of worship. It's a major center of the Church of England, as they call it there, or it's Anglican Church, as we call it here. And they basically needed to tear up the floor to install a modern... Uh, energy-efficient heating system, and this uh, occasioned all sorts of digging in the discovery of the tomb. So, Ken, you want to describe what they found when they uh, tore up the floor? Yeah. First of all, they found the floors of the Norman-era cathedral, which is the cathedral as restructured between basically the Gothic cathedral, we would call it, between 1270 and 1350. And this, we know all about that. We have the what they call the cloth roll that list which bishop paid for which piece of, you know, wood or which bucket of paint. So we have pretty solid understanding of the methods by which this church was built. But we hadn't actually seen the floor because it went through a, from my perspective, uh, something of a desecration when there was a bishop in 1807 who said, let's get rid of all this decorator tat and tore out a bunch of things, rebuilt the floor, took out all the cool little paintings and crosses and whatnot that were littering the place. He basically thought it looked a little papist to him. And it's like, well, it was built by a bunch of papists. You're in a cathedral. I don't know what you want to do about that, Bishop. Maybe try Presbyterianism. There's always a cleric who wants things to be more austere. More austere. And they have a whole country for those people. It's called Scotland. Anyhow, a lot of this original material was just covered over. And so when they were digging it up, they found it. And they also found a subterranean crypt which was filled in, according to the archaeologists, around 1300, which would roughly match this period when they're basically putting fill under the new Gothic vaulting in uh, what they call the choir, which is the area that includes not just the choir, C-H-O-I-R, but also the high altar and the bishop's seat and sort of the centerpiece of the ritual space. And underneath that, they dug in, they found themselves this uh, this crypt. And while they were digging around in the filled-in crypt, they found two empty tombs lined with stone. And they guess that they belong to two bishops of Exeter, Robert Werrell West, who was the nephew of a previous bishop. Don't confuse them. And he dies in 1155. And their theory is William Brewer, who dies in 1244, again, my source talks all day about Robert Werrell West's body being moved, but says William Brewer was buried over here and it's not moved to this spot. It was buried in the church. So the notion, maybe it was um, uh, William Brewer was buried there and that's what gave the later bishops uh, the idea to, you know, put a bunch of bishops underneath the choir, which is, I suppose, the, the outside uh, saving Smithsonian's credibility possibility. The other possibility is, well, it's a big tomb. It's empty. All the brasses that uh, used to talk about who was in which tomb were looted long ago, either by decorators or by Puritans. And uh, either way, there's no bodies there now, which is the excitement. Right. Now, it may be that they picked, in Brewer's case, the funnest possible candidate <laughs> because yeah. he's a player character. Yeah. Beryl West, perhaps not so much. So I, I have a rooting interest at least in the make him up with an asterisk part mm-hmm. of it being Brewer, because he's fun to talk about. 
So, Werrell West, who, as you point out, should not be confused, not to be confused with his uncle, also Werrell West, mm -hmm. he attended the Lateran Council too. There are a number of Lateran Councils because basically when the Pope wants to crack the whip, change the rules, get his errant and wayward bishops back in the fold, he can't just, you know, call a Zoom meeting. He says, we want you, you need to come to the office. Mm -hmm. And so there were five Lateran councils, and this one is the one that invalidated clerical marriages. So I think probably a lot of people were unhappy to show up and have yeah, their marriages right. invalidated. That might have been con controversial. Regulated clerical dress. Again, if you enjoyed putting together your own outfit, possibly irksome, and it tried to smooth over a, a recent schism. Uh, Werrell West also had some political conflict. He had some degree of ability to recognize the Earl of Cornwall, and there are two successive Earls of Cornwall who, uh, according to him, were not up to snuff, uh, perhaps due to their church lands ravaging policy. Mm -hmm. And then finally, he was suspended for a while by the Pope because a later conference, the Council of Reims, Werrell West was one of many bishops who decided to give that one a pass when they'd all been uh, summoned in to attend. So that's sort of illuminating, but it's, it's not, you know, plot hook heavy, is it? It's it's more exciting to the, you know, people who subscribe to Christianity today than it is to the people who subscribe to Dragon, I would say. Right. Brewer, on the other hand, which is apparently spelled B-R-I-W-E-R-E. -E, it's spelled it, all kind of ways when you go right, back. Because <laughs> this is before spelling. Right? right, yeah. But I guess he's he's a ware brewer. That's the way to think of that. Mm -hmm. There's a brewer who's spelled the conventional way, who was his rich barren uncle and having a rich uncle it turns out then as now is a superpower and so brewer went on the sixth crusade and he hooks up with another a bishop the bishop of winchester and they head off to the sixth crusade and they are welcomed because uncle baron has left a big chunk of change with the templars with instructions to turn it over to the nephew when he shows up so, having a lot of money in a war zone, Ken, that wins you friends, doesn't it? It does, especially friends like the Emperor Frederick II, who desperately needed money and friends, I assume. Right. So, the two bishops, Brewer and the Bishop of Winchester, become the trusted advisors to Frederick II. Who, by the way, is the Emperor of Germany, whole different country. But anyway, there we are. Right. And has been excommunicated by the Pope. So it's, it's a no-no for bishops to be sidling See up. See previous and, segment about the Gelfs and Ghibellines. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so they're, they're there on the scene for Team that. Gelf. They're present <laughs> to witness the 1229 treaty with the Sultan of Cairo that cedes Jerusalem back to Christian control for a while. And he had travels in Europe, perhaps, for a while there. It, takes, it seems like there's a while before he shows back in the uh, historical records uh, in England again. And then even after that, he becomes a royal diplomat. Uh, Henry III figures, hey, you've cozied up to Frederick II. You know what's going on, and I'm going to send you off on various missions, including one that involves Frederick II, which is brokering the marriage of Henry's sister Isabella to Frederick. So I think this guy has plot hooks attached to him. Yeah. And uh, lots of adventures out there amongst, you know, the exciting uh, Arabian Nights places. Plenty of place to get genies or vampire cooties or whatever. Anyway. He definitely seems crypt worthy. Is yeah. All I'm it, it, basically, this is the kind of guy who you want to dig in his crypt and find, you know, the Holy Grail or the, you know, um, uh, sort of uh, Saladin or whatever kind of weird magic thing you think he might have bring back. Anyway, in... 1300, possibly because too many people were trying to sneak into the crypt. Bishop Thomas de Bitten fills in the crypt. Bishop de Bitten is one of the bishops that's beginning this uh, reconstruction of the choir. And Bishop Walter de Stapledon is continuing his good work. He is, you know, just full. His, his cloth rolls are full of descriptions of what he's doing to make the choir good and cool. He left out what he did with the magical relic, but that's yeah, what well, you do. Yeah, you know, that's what it, that's because it's an outgo, not an income. That's why it goes in a different role. And he, for example, he may have, you know, from the savings that he got from selling various Holy Grails, he could have paid for the beautiful silver altarpiece that uh, is still there in Exeter. Um, he vaulted the choir and then was killed and beheaded by a London mob in 1326 because he picked, so maybe not the wrong side, but he was loyal to Edward II, 
which was certainly the unwise side. Uh, Edward II had made him treasurer of England, speaking of outgoing income, and uh, the London mob uh, were uh, anti-Edward II and partisans of Queen Isabella, and so they uh, they killed him, then beheaded him, and threw him in a, a junkyard. And uh, Queen Isabella eventually said, we should move him back to Exeter, and everyone should stop asking right. questions. And beheading is what happens when you dispose of uh, your magical relic that is anchoring the luck power of your cathedral. Or when you are in some way bitten by perhaps uh, Archbishop Brewer down there, who can say? But anyway, they had a policy of doing special incense over to the uh, bishops that were buried in the choir. Uh, that's ended by Bishop Grandison in 1337 as a wasteful expense, one assumes, and mean to the other bishops. And Bishop Grandison's body is looted in 1595. Uh, we don't know exactly when it's looted because... It's beginning to sound like there's a, a curse that has begun to operate beginning on to the sound bishops like that. after the relic was moved. Uh, but the church does maintain a light burning continuously over the choir, and we know that the light was installed in 1270, which would again be at the beginning of this uh, reconstruction period, and that it has been burning continuously since at least 1386. And it might have been before that. That's just the first time that more money for these candles goes into the into the cloth rolls. And then all the graves are opened in 1646 when Puritan soldiers occupy the cathedral and they're digging around looking for brasses and who can say maybe holy grails and solid silver relics and whatnot. So after that, it's, you know, anyone's game because the Puritan soldiers probably were not super concerned about putting bodies right back in the right place. So, you know, who can say? Uh, everything goes uh, completely chaotic in 1646. And then there's a spate of mermaid sightings in Exeter. I don't know that that's connected, but maybe it is. Maybe uh, the you need human... a second adventure once you finish your first one in Exeter. It could be. Uh, and, and your adventure is to hunt a cockatrice, which may be living in a well behind the White Hart Inn. And they hunted the cockatrice in 1723. Fun ruiners and veil outers of the time said, that's just methane. Stop being a baby. But they had no explanation. All sorts of D&D monsters after a little methane. Right. They had, they had no explanation, my friend, for the human salmon of 1737 that ran about the town and was eventually caught and uh, pickled in brine and exhibited for a bit. So, yeah, that's, that's a whole other adventure. Uh -huh. I'm having trouble even picturing which part is human and which part is salmon. Obviously, it has legs if it's running around. Yeah, it's got human legs, the body of a salmon, and then the head of a people is according to the story. Also, oh, perhaps it was just someone in a silver tunic who annoyed people. It, it could be, but he'd have to really annoy people. And he was like, you know, claiming to be a salmon. So that's not right. good. Well, you know, you, you don't question people when they say they're salmon. But Bishop Robert Werrell you'll be glad to know, was granted the tithe of Exeter fish. So maybe he had deals with the mermaids going all the way so back. This could be the salmon coming home to roost. Exactly. So, Ken, Exeter is in England. I bet it's super haunted in other ways. Yes, Exeter Cathedral itself has a ghostly nun. So that's pretty exciting. Exeter is bang between Cadbury Castle, Old Camelot. So your King Arthur uh, magics are there. And then on the other side is Dartmoor from Sherlock Holmes time, where we have all manner of standing stones and uh, haunted holes, uh, pixies uh, run about uh, in the Exeter area. So it's basically, you know, you're, you're spoiled for choice when you look for weird doings in the greater Exmoor area. Pixies parlor is in Ottery St. Mary, just a little bit to the east. And then, of course, uh, Dartmoor is uh, the same distance to the west end. King Arthur Town, Cadbury, just to the north. So, yeah, Exeter's right in the middle of sort of a metropolitan area of matter of Britain and general weirdness. Right. And so if the Grail was in the cathedral at one point, possibly a more King Arthur-y place is uh, where your player characters go to look for it. And on that giant plot hook, it's time for us to head out of this segment and into an entirely different one. The best 
of Ask the Geln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Make sure this podcast is not entombed in Exeter by joining such vaulted Patreon backers as... The Redacted Files Podcast. Patrick Joint. Dave Stecco. Jacob Borsma and Matt Farr. We bought our tickets online. We have our seats pre-selected. We have pre-selected the center seats, center aisle of the Cinema Hut, Cineplex 12, because we're in the last day, the last showings of the Science Fiction Cinema Essentials series, Robin. But it is now. It's happening right now, today or at least in the last five years or so. Starting in 2016. Exactly. uh, With Shin Godzilla by uh, Hideaka Anno and Shinji Higuchi. This is only the second Godzilla movie that's made our essentials list, and this is an example of riffing on a property at its finest and most subversive, because it is basically about if the latest Godzilla attack, which in this case it's a uh, reboot, so it starts over from from zero in terms of people knowing about Godzilla. Instead of being the horror film, uh, the apocalyptic horror of the uh, original first one by Shiro Honda, is basically a metaphor for the Fukushima nuclear plant disaster, and therefore completely about the political and bureaucratic paralysis and messing around and foolishness and stupidity that results when the creature appears. And for a while, you'll be going, this doesn't seem like a Godzilla movie due to the absence of Godzilla, but that works itself out too. And it's one of the few Godzilla movies where the absence of Godzilla is actually as interesting as the presence of Godzilla because Ano and Higuchi do put together a remarkable, uh, I think at the time I compared it to a Wes Anderson office comedy about Godzilla. And there's a lot of that, but that sort of bureaucratic paralysis in the face of the new is another, I think, very strong culture reacting to new scientific developments. And that goes back, you know, well past Heinlein. And in a way, we've got a little bit of the DNA of uh, Woman in the Moon, where we have sort of a new thing that the current systems aren't prepared to deal with, but uh, flail around trying to take control of anyway. And that's a very interesting concept and is not done as often as it might be, but it's done really, really well there. Another science fiction movie from the same year is Denny Villeneuve's Arrival, which is a first contact aliens show up and they speak in a wildly crazy language that Amy Adams is the intuitive yet wounded linguist who can figure it out. And what she figures out is, I guess, sort of a spoiler, so we shan't continue on, but it is a very thinky science fiction film in a way that many of them are not. And it's based on an even better science fiction short story. And it's a absolutely, you know, standard if I want to use that term about a great actual science fiction movie, it's a, a work of very standard science fiction. And because Villeneuve makes it, it looks really great. Right. But it's also nonlinear. It's a very imagistic. It has real sense of mood and tone to it. And if there is a unifying factor in these last films that we're going to talk about, it is they're all kind of headed toward the trippier side of things. Yeah, they're 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 tone poems as much as they are movies in many ways and or they're movies that are really hitting, you know, what you feel when you're in the theater, the emotion created by the beauty or or ugliness on screen that that is as much a part of the of the story and of the science fictionalness of it if that's a word, which it is now, as any sort of uh, white-coated scientist explaining the uh, backstory which Fortunately, happens very little in this in this last series. Right. I also remember thinking this is the last movie of the Obama era. Mm-hmm. By the time it was out, uh, Trump had been elected, and it's like 
the idea that, you know, if you can just get through to the president and explain the situation, everything's going to be okay. Shin Godzilla was here to tell us how the wisdom of that plan. Right. Yes. (laughs) Well, Japan has perhaps uh, had a longer (laughs) history of... uh, sclerotic messed up government but yeah let's say that let's say that they have a longer history with a democracy lasting almost 60 years well well, i'm not saying they have a (laughs) they have a longer history of things being uh people knowing everything is messed up and can't can't be fixed right and and the incident that inspired it right Their, their, their cinema has a longer history of admitting it let's put it that way right but the idea that this would come out hopefully under the next administration uh, seemed suddenly far-fetched. And not to get off on that tangent, because uh, we're trying to wrap things up, uh, let's go to another imagistic mood poem art house movie by Denis Villeneuve the following year, which of course is Blade Runner 2049. Ryan Gosling sort of steps into the protagonist role for this sequel, Harrison Ford is the MacGuffin that he's searching for. And again, this is using the powers of of riffing on old IP, in this case, to uh, create a really uh, entrancing, strange, mood-forward, not even so much a sequel to uh, the original Blade Runner, but a, a meditation upon it. And I think one of the interesting, bold things that Villeneuve does is he forwards the timeline enough that the recognizable world of Blade Runner, all of the visual images that you expect, that's in the past now. It's a mm-hmm. whole other weird uh, dying future. Yeah, I want to single out Robin Wright Penn for, again, playing the uh, system and doing a superb job of it. I don't think that it's as essential as you think it is, but I can't deny that it's a, a mood-enhancing tone poem of a movie, and uh, elements of it are certainly haunting and stick with you uh, in the forever place where really good science fiction imagery goes. So, you know, if you've ever dreamed of having a 30 foot tall neon Anadarmus, this is the movie for you. Speaking of movies that are image first and feel first and story, maybe never Alex Garland has a movie just like that called annihilation in which a team of hard ass scientists led by the hardest Jennifer Jason Lee has ever played, perhaps playing against type as a martinet who can't emote. But Natalie Portman is sort of the, the lead scientist, but they're all going in to the zone, a, a weird area of alien, uh, if I want to say alien, I could also say Yogg-Sothothi biology somewhere in Florida. And Natalie Portman's trying to find out what happened to her husband, Oscar Isaac, previously in the zone. But that rapidly uh, sort of falls away as Garland just sort of presents a a nightmare, but a science fictional one, arguing that uh, unlike Kubrick, when we touch the alien, it's just going to mess us up and we're never going to figure out what we're supposed to be doing with it, I would say. Right. We praise this in the Horror Essential series because it's, it's science horror. It is drawing as much on Carpenter's The Thing and on the imagery of Cronenberg as uh, other things that we've talked about in strictly this science fiction angle. It is definitely reality horror, and indeed, you know, it has to go on this list as well. My next pick is a movie by uh, one of my favorite art house auteurs, and it's the French director Claire Denis. And this is High Life, made in English with Robert uh, Pattison, uh, is a member of a, a crew of basically experimental subjects who are deemed surplus riffraff on Earth and have been imprisoned on this ship so that they can. Uh, sort of go to the far horizon of space and be experimented upon. Juliet Pinoche is the mad scientist performing reproductive experiments on them. So quite a, a role shift for her. It also has Andre Benjamin and Mia Goth as other inmates on the ship. And again, the thing that is memorable about this film, in addition to Pattinson's character's uh, bond with a uh, baby that eventually shows up, is its strange imagistic power and its sort of sense of uh, slow uh, horror and basically this is the spaceship as as tomb or possibly uh, if you're lucky a seed of something new and i didn't see it so i'm gonna nod knowingly and move on to another movie i haven't seen robin tell us about aniara so this is by uh, pella kagerman and uh, hugo lilia this is also from 2019 this is a, a swedish film based on a an epic poem that yeah. apparently you learn in school there the poet is uh, named harry martinson and basically it is about the unforgiving math of being in space when something goes wrong but unlike 
American films like Gravity or The Martian, good old American hope and know-how don't really help. So basically, it's about a ship. It's a a passenger vessel taking the people to uh, another planet because Earth has been wrecked. And it goes just ever so slightly off course. But the way the math works is it ever so slightly becomes greater and greater. And the people on the ship, they try to do a number of things. Occasionally, something comes up where it seems like there's a possibility of success. But really, this is about the last people and what happens to their society and their culture and their behavior once they know that they are doomed. Mm. Now, a film that you have seen, Ken, Tenet by Christopher Nolan from 2020. Yes, this is talking about a movie that is about vibes and uh, feel and presentation and uh, images over plot. We're talking about Tenet. Tenet, to the extent it has a plot, it's about a CIA agent, nameless protagonist played by John David Washington, who, after dying in the course of a raid on a opera house in Ukraine, uh, awakens to find that he's part of a even bigger Cold War, a new Cold War against a future that has weaponized time travel. And so they send objects back. And so the result is entropically reversed bullets that fire backwards, cars that drive backwards, people who live backwards, etc. And there is a, a Russian oligarch who is the agent of this dire future on Earth, played by Kenneth Branagh. And there are probably half a dozen perfect Christopher Nolan action set pieces in service of a sort of a mannerist science fiction story that redounds, as do many of Nolan's films, to the question of what is one man's role and one man's responsibility in an unknowable universe. And John David Washington does a superb job throughout as your sort of through line. Robert Pattinson plays his sidekick question mark, and I would hesitate to spoiler tenant for people who haven't seen it, but it is a twisty time travel movie. It is a perfect action thriller, and it is a big, you know, man in the face of the unknowable, and in this case, the unknowable is time travel, and uh, whether or not the future is destined or uh, alterable, and that great question is the question of Tenet. It's another of Nolan's mind-blowing puzzle films that theme goes all the way back to his first to his breakthrough film uh, memento uh, this one is like watching a filmed adaptation of a record being played backwards <laughs> people said the problem with inception was it wasn't puzzling enough but it does baffle you mostly throughout and uh, perhaps make sense uh, when you get to it and it's just an incredible sensory look into a way that sort of distorted time can turn our reality into an alien and inexplicable world and so again it's sort of not reality horror per se, but also kind of. And I, I think that's the other theme that keeps coming through here. And then finally, the entropy for the last film we're going to talk about descends to a much smaller, more personal scale in After Yang, directed by Koganada in uh, 2022. And that is about Colin Farrell basically mourning the death of the realistic android who's been introduced into the household as a companion for their child. And trying to fix him and it's not going to be fixed and it's a way of looking at science fiction and our fears and hopes for artificial intelligence basically as the baseline for a, a meditation on grief and then again it's a film i haven't seen so i will nod knowingly as robin describes it but certainly you know, we've had the, the natural uh, end of the space epic in Aniara, the natural end of the time travel epic and a science fictional puzzle in Tenet. And now we have the human, human and other intelligence, in this case, uh, an intelligence we built ourselves, a robot in After Yang. And those strains began us in the 20s and are looking to continue, I would say, Robin, pretty much forever. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see where we go from this present moment of beautiful imagistic doomerism and skewed reality but those are definitely the themes that are uh, on the plate now as we conclude finally this very lengthy uh, <laughs> series much longer than we thought it would be so thanks everybody for uh listening in and sticking with us and i guess uh starting next week i'll have to come up with a different fourth segment each time and on that note there's still one segment left and it's on the other side of this commercial
In Delta Green, cosmic terror meets modern conspiracy. The secret group Delta Green dedicates itself to protecting humanity from unnatural horrors. They misappropriate the resources of the U.S. government to wage a war they must at all costs keep hidden. Delta Green, the conspiracy, is the source book for the grungy, cynical era that started it all. The 1990s. Generation X becomes Generation Ugh! In Delta Green, The Conspiracy. An updated, rearranged version of the original 1997 Delta Green sourcebook with new art and graphic design. Featuring top-secret Eldritch new appendices by Shane Blackbag Ivy. And a foreword by Ray Plausibly Deniable Winninger. Put on your flannels, grab your duffel bag of hardware, and assemble your fake passports. Enter the Temple of the Dog, exit the Temple of Cthulhu. Never mind all the brain leakage you suffer when seeking the Nirvana of Nyarlath Tap. Find the fungi on the Mina airfield. And why Jeremy really spoke in class today. Tell your retailer it's at that unmarked warehouse they always order from. That's Delta Green, the conspiracy. From Arc Dream Publishing. The whirring of time gears and the clacking of chronotons tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine. This is the vehicle that his superiors at Time Incorporated used to send our chrono hero back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, estimable patron backer Johan Tor says this to us. Ken admits that he shook hands with Lech Vivenza. When exactly did that happen, and what kind of Time Incorporated mischief was he on about? Well, first of all, I object to admits. I glory in the fact that I shook hands with Lech Valenza. The veil out, the cover story, is that on May 28th, 1996, Valenza was at the University of Chicago to give a lecture and take part in a seminar with Cold War historians and historians of post-communist Europe. And as he was going to his car, I was going up the street and I said to myself, that's like Valenza. And I extended my hand and a uh, man of the people and democratic politician that he is. Valenza said, perhaps a voter and shook my hand. And it was one of the, I think, three actual heroes I've ever uh, shaken hands with. So I'm, you know, overjoyed to have done that. But of course, People Robin. People are going to now, they'll ask if I don't. Who are the other two? Mila Van Gilas, the author of the new class, uh, Yugoslavian dissident, and Abu El Fadl, who was a Muslim uh, scholar in Egypt, who was a fairly trenchant critique of Islamism, and I think does not live in Egypt anymore as a result of, of his brave speaking out. So later on, you would go uh, meet him again, but couldn't tell him that you're going to meet him because of time shenanigans. And what was that all about? That was the prevention of the Soyuz 80 invasion of Poland. Valencia has founded Solidarity by now. A quarter of the country has signed up to join an actual labor union instead of a communist party labor union. Everyone in Russia is saying, get it together, Poland. And Poland's like, we're trying, we're trying. And uh, East Germany and Czechoslovakia are both saying, well, last time we did that, you invaded us. Let's invade. And Brezhnev is sort of moving in and out of his twilight years by then, but is like, I remember invading. That was great. Let's do that. So they begin a plan to basically occupy Poland with the connivance and assistance of the Polish army in December of 1980. And they say, we're going to start the Soyuz 80 war games and under cover of those war games, we're just going to invade Poland and shut you people down because you can't run a country in a proper communist fashion. Right. And I guess quickly give people a little bit of context of what's happening in Poland in 1980. Right. Lech Valenza was a, a welder at the Gdansk shipyard at the time, the Lenin shipyard, because Lenin, of course, famously a shipbuilder. And he basically went on strike. He was a labor agitator, was part of a workers committee as Poland was raising its prices because its economy was failing. It had to peg these lottie to something in order to stay eligible for Western loans. And so that involved raising their domestic prices and solidarity struck over that was basically 
basically created by that uh, discovery. The labor union movement, because it sort of attacked from the populist left, was much harder for the communist government to denigrate because it was literally the workers getting together in some kind of council or Soviet and saying, we need more money and uh, not to be mistreated. Poland had been occupied by the Soviet Union for a great long time, had been put down. Numerous worker resistances had been gunned down either by the Polish government or by Soviet occupiers. And at this point, we were building to another giant conflict. As I said, a quarter of the population of Poland had joined uh, Solidarity. The government thought that they could sort of redirect it. But they failed to do that because they were mostly, you know, bureaucrats and uh, commissars. So they were very bad at things. So fortunately, this is an instance where we're talking about the timeline we're living in because this is a a time thing that you did and has taken effect. And what was that thing? Well, uh, it was a sort of a two-level thing. The first thing that I had to do was reshuffle the Politburo. In uh, our timeline, the extraordinarily hardline Semyon Svigun was the uh, KGB deputy director. He was uh, connected to the Brezhnev family, so he was part of the Brezhnev gang, and he was basically put in the KGB to keep an eye on Yuri Andropov, the very ambitious head of uh, the KGB, who was also on the Politburo, which is a very unusual thing to have, have going on. Right. And in a previous timeline, Svigun outmaneuvered Andropov and became KGB director and moved into the Politburo under cover of Brezhnev. Also, uh, Brezhnev had another lieutenant uh, named uh, Andrei Kirilenko, who got sidelined in 1976 in favor of a different Brezhnev toady, Chernenko. But this was a bureaucratic war in 1976 that had Kirilenko won instead of Mikhail Suslov, who advised Brezhnev, don't invade, and Yuri Andropov, who said, we've just invaded Afghanistan, maybe one invasion at a time is good. We have Svigun and Kirilenko on that committee, and no one is there to tell Brezhnev, don't invade. So first, I have to undo those. Svigun is relatively easy to sideline back again, thanks to the grotesque corruption of his in-laws. And Kirilenko, poor guy, starts developing really serious arteriosclerosis, and his health is why he's not able to resist Chernenko sidelining him in 76. So with that done, the only thing to do is to grease the bureaucratic wheels for Polish First Secretary Stanislaw Kanya, who flew to the uh, Warsaw Pact summit that was getting ready to launch Soyuz 80 and said, I want to meet with Brezhnev. And everyone says, you can't meet with Brezhnev. We're too busy planning the invasion of Poland. Shouldn't you be back there helping? And Kanye says, this is a terrible idea. I really need to meet with Brezhnev. And thanks to perhaps a couple of you know, file folders getting switched around or a folder of diamonds showing up somewhere it shouldn't have. Kanye gets in to meet with Brezhnev and in what has got to be the most frustrating and noble piece of oratory ever committed by a communist functionary, talks Brezhnev out of the Soyuz 80 war games, says, I cannot promise that if you invaded with angels, the Polish people would not call them vampires, uh, which is a great turn of phrase. Maybe was suggested to him by a handsome uh, vodka drinking fellow he met in the Kremlin. Who can say? Yes. If only Putin had gotten that advice. If only, if only Putin had, had had the, if the guys aren't already on your side, don't invade a country with 300,000 troops. But for whatever reason, Brezhnev in this timeline listens to Kanye calls off the invasion, and the result is that the Polish government declares martial law, which is awful for everyone, but is less awful than being invaded by the Soviets, which Yaruzelski now claims he did as a noble gesture to save the country. Yaruzelski was covering his tail, and uh, everyone knows this. Now, I hate to be a time stickler, especially in an episode where we're running over, Mm -hmm. but what happened to Vovenza in the dark timeline? before you permitted it. Oh, in the dark timeline, he is rounded up and killed in 1980 as the East German troops come pouring across the border into Gdansk in a weird rerun. And Valencia is rounded up and killed. He is obviously on the uh, secret police's radar. He is, in our timeline, arrested in 81 once martial law comes in. So it's not like that was hard. And he is, you know, murdered in a basement. Right. So that means that in the memory you have of shaking his hand in 1996, presumably before your association with Time Incorporated, Mm -hmm. that 
that's a memory, but not what you experienced. That you are remembering what happened in our timeline, but that timeline didn't happen to you until you changed it. Until I changed it, yes. So have you, have you in fact, as you claim, met Lech Valenza? Yes, because I met the Lech Valenza that I changed the timeline at some great personal cost to uh, prevent, which was the invasion of Poland. And sure, the Soviet bloc falls apart much faster in that one. But you know what? There's a lot of people dead, and Poland is very badly damaged by the invasion. CF Ukraine now. So it was all in all much better for me to have saved and then previously have already met like Valenza. Right. Well, we'll leave it to the listener to make some Tenet-style time maps of exactly how that all worked out. And uh, we're going to Blip on out of uh, this here episode and blip back in a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Paul Green Press. Aspagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect this podcast from kaiju and bureaucratic stasis by joining such fast-moving backers as... Sean Hoyle. Ariel Celeste. Jeffrey Pittman. Linda and Mike Schiffer. And Peter Nix. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Present the gray alien point of view with our latest design. Nope, still not us. On X, he's at Kenneth Height. And on Mastodon, he's Robin D. Laws at Dice.camp. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.